0: The Old Pilot's Plane Tales. The RBC Monsters. My friend Nige was an Air Force Jaguar pilot and used to low flying. He regularly trained to fly at only 100 feet above the ground skimming along at 420 knots or more. When that kind of flying was the bread and butter of your life, you became damn good at it. Or pretty soon you'd be joining your ex-colleagues in the afterlife. However, one day he was doing some work with a Norwegian Air Force squadron of F-104 starfighters. The squadron was spending a while up in the north of the country, in Bodo to be precise, and when they could, the units offered each other flights in their two-seaters. So Nige is sitting in the back of this F-104, watching an eight-ship attack mission, and his young Scandahooligan pilot in the front starts to descend down towards the ocean. Passing Nigel's comfort level, the descent continued, and the horizon started to rise up around the cockpit, higher and higher, until the radio altimeter was unreadably low. With his hand on the ejector seat handle, he waited to see if the sea was going to start engulfing the cockpit, but at around 10 feet or so, the aircraft stabilised and sat there quite comfortably. Nigel's pilot wasn't just showing off, this was the way they flew as they approached the ship they were targeting, so that they could stay underneath the radar horizon and avoid detection. Perhaps surprisingly, in Niger's mind, they returned quite safely to Bodo, and once he could speak properly again, he asked his young pilot how he was able to fly so close to the water.
1: "'Oh, it's
0: easy,' came the reply. "'You just descend down until you feel the ground effect pushing back, and the aircraft sits happily there.'" So what is this magical effect that let that pilot sit comfortably, literally skimming the waves?' When a wing creates lift, it causes a pressure differential between the upper and lower surfaces and beneath the wing the pressure is higher. In addition, the wing deflects the air passing around it downwards, giving a resultant force acting upwards. These changes in airflow normally dissipate in the air around the wing but when the wing is very close to the ground, the presence of that impermeable barrier changes the nature of the effects. The increase in pressure below the wing is felt like a cushion of air, and the closer to the ground the wing is, the stronger the effect. Whilst in ground effect, the wing requires a lower angle of attack, that's the angle of the wing measured against the direction of the oncoming airflow, to produce the same amount of lift. The ground also helps to prevent the air spilling from beneath the wing to above it around the wingtips, which creates the highly draggy wingtip vortices that we often refer to as lift-dependent drag. This means that while in ground effect, the aircraft needs less thrust to fly at the same speed. These are a series of little aerodynamic gifts that the presence of the earth, or the sea come to that, give the machine flying just above it. Of course, ground effect can be a slight annoyance. When trying to land an aircraft, particularly one with a low-mounted wing, we have to overcome the pressure to actually get our wheels onto the runway. It can cause an aircraft to float down the runway, not really decelerating a lot and flying below the normal stall speed. In an airliner it can be quite a problem, as with the engines at idle and the runway fast disappearing beneath, it's easy to both eat up too much runway to land safely, and it can take a long time to get the engines spooled up again to safely go around. The first time I ever landed a 340 with my father on board, in an effort to impress him, I tried too hard to make a silky smooth landing and flared a tiny bit too much. I sat there in ground effect, smoothly gliding along, watching the runway disappear with the rad calling our height. Five, 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 five. With a gentle derotation, I got the machine to settle on, but we ended up taxiing off from the far end of the runway at a part of the airfield that was very unfamiliar. The effect was first observed in large marine birds, who seemed to fly enormous distances with unaccountably little effort as they skimmed the surface of the water. By the 1920s, aerodynamicists were familiar with the phenomenon. The Frenchman, Maurice Lassure, wrote, Here the imagination of inventors is offered a vast field. The ground interference reduces the power required for level flight in large proportions, so here is a means of rapid and at the same time economic locomotion. At first glance this apparatus is dangerous because the ground is uneven, and the altitude, uh, called skimming, permits no freedom of manoeuvre, but on large sized aircraft over water, the question may be attempted. In the 30s, the first hybrid designs, something between a high speed launch and a grand effect vehicle, were created by the Finnish designer and engineer. Thomas Cario, and he is considered by many to be the father of the ekranoplane, meaning ground-effect vehicle concept. The word is derived from the Russian language, and although Alexander Lipich, a German working in America, was developing designs, it was indeed the Russians who were taking it very seriously. Led by Rostilov Alexeyev, a Soviet shipbuilder, who worked for the Soviet Central Hydrofoil Design Bureau, they worked on several designs until at last they were ready to go forward to a full-size version. It was in September 1966 that an American spy satellite orbited over a Soviet naval base on the Caspian Sea, its cameras clicking away. When the images reached the intelligence officers, they created quite a stir, There was a lot of head-scratching amongst the analysts as they tried to work out what on earth they were looking at. The Soviets had built what appeared to be a vast flying boat with ten huge engines, two on the fin, although in one image they appeared to be mounted on a vertical pylon on top of the cockpit, and eight mounted just behind the flight deck in pods on horizontal pylons either side of the fuselage. The fuselage was over 300 feet long, around 92 metres, and the tail was a huge V-shaped T-tail with a high dihedral. But the wings? Nobody had any idea what was up with the wings. They were mounted low on the fuselage and they looked incredibly short and fat, way too small for a craft of that size. Perhaps they were still being built, But even if completed, they thought that it would fly really badly. What on earth were they doing? When they worked out all the sums, they just didn't add up. This aircraft was going to weigh over a million pounds. That's around 550 metric tons. As they studied it, they saw that on one side was a Soviet Navy flag, and on the other, the letters Kilo Mike, KM. So they dubbed this unbelievable machine the Caspian Monster, since it was being built on the edge of the Caspian Sea. From this came the more usual name, the Caspian Sea Monster. What it actually stood for was Collable Maquette, meaning prototype ship. So what exactly had the spy satellites found? The aircraft, or ship if you like, because there's still debate as to which category it should fall into, was a classic Ekranoplan ground-effect aircraft, but built on a massive scale. The concept was very smart. Although this was an experimental prototype, it was projected to carry 900 fully equipped troops. Being a ground-effect vehicle, it would cruise at only around 20 feet or so above the sea, so would stay undetected beneath most ground-based radars and cruise up to a foreign beach to disgorge its load of troops. Being such an efficient form of flight, its expected range was nearly 1,000 miles, for the Western analysts this all was conjecture and intrigue and they devoted a special task force which went as far as developing a purpose-built unmanned drone called the Aquiline just to discover what it was. However, despite all this effort, it wasn't until the 1980s, well after the sea monster had sunk, that they discovered that the Caspian monster was a vast Ecranoplan ground-effect vehicle. For the Soviets, things weren't as easy when developing a new form of vehicle as they hoped, and the testing of the sea monster went on for years until it crashed due to pilot error. It floated for a week before slowly sinking. It was thought that saving such a vast machine was going to be just too difficult. The KM remained the largest aircraft in the world during the entirety of its existence, and was not surpassed until the Antonov An-225 in 1988, eight years after its destruction. However, from what they had learned, they continued to work on similar craft. Soon a vast missile carrier was skimming along the ocean, the Lund-class Ekranoplan. Only a little smaller than the KMC Monster, the two rear engines were replaced with a large sensor array and along the top of the fuselage were three pairs of Moskit P-270 guided missiles, NATO name Sunburn, in angled launchers, with their guidance radars mounted in the nose and on the tail. The P-270 was a supersonic about Mach 2.3, ramjet-powered anti-ship missile, which could carry both conventional and nuclear warheads, so this Socrano had the potential to be a highly destructive craft. However, only a single machine was built, the MD-160, NATO codenamed Duck, which entered service with the Black Sea Fleet in 1987, and served for around a decade. These vast, unwieldy machines weren't a success, mainly because of their inability to manoeuvre well. Despite flying so low and with such short wings, any hint of a hard turn could dig a wingtip float into the ocean, which would result in the massive craft cartwheeling to destruction. However, not willing to give up on the concept... A similar Ekranoplan was built, weighing only 140 tons. This was the A90 Oleonok, designed as a beach assault vehicle, and was more flexible since it could climb out of ground effect to up around 10,000 feet, and was equipped with wheels for beaching and operating from land based runways. It was powered by two turbofans buried in the nose and angled down to assist takeoff. Once off the water and in ground effect, these could be shut down, and the remaining turboprop with contra-rotating propellers mounted in the tail would be sufficient for the crews. Although the plan was to have a large number of these more versatile aircraft, only five were built before funding was abruptly cut off. The first was used for static testing, but the remaining four remained in service with the Soviet Navy until 1993. So ended the military interest in such machines, but in more recent times the concept has fascinated designers from many countries. There have been several experimental craft the jury is still out on, whether it's a ship or an aircraft, but generally considered to be a ship unless it can climb out of ground effect, in which case it's an aircraft, which include the Hoverwing, built by the University of Duisburg-Essen, and the Airfish series, designed by Alexander Lippich. Aerofoil Development in Germany built the flight ship, and even Bert Ruten has been dabbling with the concept. But all these machines are lightweight, prop-driven miniature versions of the Sea Monster. Other countries have had a go, including South Korea, Iran, France and China, to name just a few. Good heavens, even Boeing got in the act with the Boeing Pelican Ultra, standing for ultra-large transport aircraft. This concept ship aircraft thing was projected to carry a vast amount of cargo and was put in the category of outsized cargo ground effect freight aircraft. Cruising at 240 knots in ground effect, it was going to weigh nearly 6 million pounds, that's 2,700 metric tons, It was going to be 390 feet long and have a wingspan that would increase from 340 feet to 500 feet when the folding wings were spread. When in ground effect this was going to give this goliath an effective wingspan of 804 feet. At maximum payload the claim was that it would have a range of 3,000 nautical miles but with a smaller payload The range increased to 10,000 nautical miles, but reduced it again if it climbed up to a potential 20,000 feet. It would carry 180 standard shipping containers in the fuselage on two decks, and another 20 inside the wings. Operating from conventional airports, it had 76 fuselage-mounted wheels to support its vast weight. Perhaps a little fanciful, this concept aircraft was thought of in 2002 and, had it been supported, would have flown in 2015 by Miami-Rick. By the way, all that came from Flight Global and Boeing Frontiers, except for the Miami-Rick bit. There have also been moves to recreate the Eklano Plan, machines that the Soviets built in both civil and and military versions, because of the attractiveness of the amazing fuel efficient inherent in this style of flight, which is so very appealing. I guess we may see more of them in the future, but until they get over the problems of manoeuvrability, and work out how to avoid the big waves, I for one will be happier at 39,000 feet. Plane Tales is a featured segment of the Airline Pilot Guy show aviation podcast. Find us at AirlinePilotGuy.com.